I have the privilege of talking to you about the greatest person that could be, God himself, and telling you about the attribute that we most love, which is his love for us. So thank you for joining us on this sweltering Southern California day. How embarrassing. I'm going to take a picture of this fan and send it to a pastor friend of mine in Kansas. He's going to mock me to scorn all week. We have so much to be thankful for, and I want you to hear over and over again how grateful I am for you. You have found ways to continue serving and loving and giving as a church. We had to reinvent ourselves as, as, as an organism. We're, not, we're organized, but we're really a living thing. The church is the body of Christ. And you figured things out technologically. We had people in their 70s and into their 80s figuring out how Zoom worked and how Google Hangouts work and finding out for the first time that they could FaceTime with friends. And you've sacrificed and changed and been so humble and so patient with each other and with your pastors and your whole church family. You figured out how to give online and how to do everything that is essential to the life of the church. And now we have not only this weather and this breeze, but I even have a fan. So let's thank the Lord together, and then we'll continue to worship and hear His Word. Father, thank You. We love You. Help us understand, Lord, how much You love us. That's the topic. It's known and believed, but it cannot truly be understood as deeply, Lord, as you mean it to be on this side of glory. But we thank you. And thank you for showing me this week what you've shown me in your word. Help me explain it well. Lord, it would be, a, it's a dangerous thing to speak of you because I can give people the wrong impression. I can say the wrong thing, use a wrong word picture that makes them think that you are other than who you really are. So give me clarity of thought and great love in my heart and in my being for you and overcome my weaknesses and my limitations so that everyone who is here would know exactly who you are and would know at least in the beginnings the depth of your great love that we've been singing about. So for the privilege of worshiping and giving offerings and serving and loving and discipling one another and encouraging each other through this hard time, we thank you in the name of Jesus. And Crosspoint said, amen. Ladies and gentlemen, today is going to be different because, let me explain to you on the front side while I secure the pages of my Bible. Got all this new technology to keep my Bible pages in place. Somebody kindly gave me a rock before church started. It's not a rock. It's a little sculpture that looks like a rock and said it, we could tell it pained you and it definitely pained us for you to put your iPhone on your Bible while you preached. And we've got it all figured out, I think. This week, I had what for me was a transformational discovery from the Bible, and it's that I want to share with you. And today is going to be different, not because of this, because we're getting used to this. Today is going to be different because of the kind of sermon I'm going to share with you. What I normally do is what Bible geeks call expository preaching, where I take a passage of the Bible, try to find its central idea, and explain it to you. 
That's expository preaching. That keeps pastors honest. It's generally the best idea you could have because it keeps preachers from hobby-horsing and preaching their opinions rather than God's Word. If you're moving faithfully through a section of the Bible or a whole book of the Bible, you're eventually, if, if the teaching is accurate, you're in, going to end up saying what God actually said in His Word. Make sense so far? Today is going to be different, but it's going to be different for a reason. This is a doctrinal sermon. And doctrine just means teaching. Don't let that scare you off. If you're new to the Bible, you're just figuring out who God is, who Jesus is, why we sing about Him, why in the world the church would bother to set up tents and fans and cameras in a parking lot. If this is all new to you, please don't let the word doctrine scare you off. A doctrinal statement or a doctrinal sermon is just a statement of fact or a statement of truth about something that God Himself knows. The most famous doctrinal statement, of course, is that God is love. Whenever somebody says that, they're actually at that moment jumping into the world of doctrine. They are claiming to tell you in that moment that they know who God is and what He is like. And a doctrinal sermon has to go at different places in the Bible because, as you can see, the Bible's a big book. And it repeatedly tells us the truth. The reality that God knows is explained to us across the Bible. God knows exactly who human beings are, for instance. Have you ever been puzzled by human beings? You ever been puzzled by yourself? I ask myself all the time, why did I do that? Or more often, what's wrong with me? Well, I get that question from more than myself. Other people ask that as well. God knows exactly who human beings are. He knows what life is. He knows what true joy and love are. God, it may not surprise you, God Himself knows who God Himself is. He knows and understands Himself. And across His Word, through all these stories and letters and prophecies and poetry and the wisdom literature of Proverbs, God continually talks about the reality that God Himself knows better than anyone. So when anyone reading the Bible tries to understand and to make kind of a summary statement about any part of God's creation, they have to do doctrine. In other words, they have to look across the Bible because if you only say one thing that is true, no matter how true it is, but if you only confine yourself to one thing that is true about God, you'll end up with an imperfect picture of who God is. For instance, if you said that Bruce Garner is a father, that would be true. But there's much more to it than that. I'm also a friend. I'm also blessed to be a husband. I'm also a pastor. I'm also a citizen of the United States who was raised in Mexico. So when you do doctrine, it's not, only, it's not ever entirely safe to take one little passage of Scripture and say, this is true and this is all there is. That's how you end up with a distorted, incomplete, and because of its incompleteness, you can end up with a false view of God. Make sense so far? And why are you going into all this? I just want you to understand the, on the front side why this is going to be so different from a normal Sunday. Because today and next week, thankfully we won't have to do this introductory stuff next week, I want to talk to you about the greatest and most well-known and most loved statement about God Himself, if you have your notes. Today I want to talk to you about this simple statement, that God is love. 
and to reflect doctrinally on that truth, which is the greatest fact in the universe. The greatest thing anyone could ever tell you about reality is that there is a God who exists, and that God himself explained himself to you by telling you that God himself is love. Where did that phrase come from? That's not a bumper sticker. That's not a Hallmark card. That is Scripture. And if you have your bulletin with me, I'd like you to read with me 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. From time to time, I'm going to ask you to read, so hopefully you got your bulletin. If you didn't, you can just listen. But right now, let's read together 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The Bible says, the Apostle John, writing about what he knew of God and writing to other Christians, made this statement, this doctrinal statement. 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What is God? God is love. You ever had any comfort from that fact? Have you ever had time, had a hard time reconciling if this is true, why is your life so hard? Have you ever questioned whether God loved you? Have you ever worried and wondered that something you have done has caused God to love you less? Have you ever pondered that maybe God loves you sometimes as you love your children a little bit resentfully? Because parents love their children. I hope and pray, if necessary, that I would have the courage to die for my sons. But there can be some anger laced in it. There can be a great love for a child and a text message to your best friend saying these kids are driving me crazy. Anybody ever done that? Kids, you ever feel that way about your parents? You love them. You're so grateful for them, but they're so weird and obnoxious and have all these nonsensical rules that will only make sense to you about 10 years from now. When we say that God is love, we are making a doctrinal statement of the greatest truth in the whole universe, but because it is so amazing, people have a hard time getting their minds around it. And this week, I reflected that the truth that God is love is distorted in two different ways. Liberalism, biblical liberalism, says that God is permissive and indulgent. And I have had countless Christians in my 30 years as a pastor tell me that they are going to do something that they themselves know is wrong and sinful, but it's okay because God is love. And yes, I'm going to go ruin my life and disappoint my family and bring no telling what shame and harm to my children, but that's okay because God is love. Have you ever heard that justification? Have you ever made it? In that case, you're drifting over to the left toward biblical liberalism that envisions God as a permissive God who is indulgent, who literally does not care what you do. He simply loves you, and in that view of God, anything goes because God is love. If you're at this church and you have your Bible open, you probably tend more toward the ditch on the other side of the road, which I'll call legalism. And legalism gives you the sinking suspicion that God is eager to strike in judgment and that you can lose His love at any moment. 
maybe not lose it permanently, but certainly diminish it. That God in heaven will look down at you with a sort of brittle, regretful love. That you've brought pain to his heart, and because of the disappointment that you've caused him, now he loves you in a way that is less than it otherwise could be. And that ditch, that's the ditch I fall into all the time. And the truth is that God is love. And this is the thought that I had this week. I discovered this thought in a sentence. And that sentence sent me on a journey of discovery all week, and it sent me into a book that I'll recommend to you via email later today. If you'll sign up for my weekly email, I'll send you the title of the book. It led me to this provocative thought that rocked my world so much, I actually checked it with about half a dozen pastors. And having done that, I checked it with my wife who said, yes, of course, that's what I was sharing with my Bible group last week. She was ahead of me. Here's the thought. The truth is this, God does not have to be provoked to love. He can only be provoked to anger. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but I want to show you that it is. By His very nature, because God is love, God never has to be provoked to love. He can't be induced. He doesn't need to be encouraged. He doesn't need to be comforted or guided. He doesn't need to be blessed or served. Nothing has to be done in relationship with God to make Him love. He can only be provoked to one thing, and that one thing that God can be provoked to is anger. God can be provoked to anger because though God is love, love is not all that God is. Just like you, He has more than one attribute. God is love, but He is more than love. But here is the soul-saving, beautiful comforting all week to me idea. Because of the very nature of God, the God who exists, who made the world and all that is in it, the God who made you, made you to love you because God is love. And in His very nature, to use a human way of speaking because it's hard to know how to speak of an eternal God, what comes most naturally to God everything's easy for God, nothing is impossible for God, but if you'll indulge a turn of phrase, what comes most naturally to God, what most readily, easily, and eternally flows out of God is not judgment, but love, because God always and only and eternally loves, He can only be provoked to anger. Now, don't raise your hands because I'll get discouraged because we're just on a journey together. How many of you are nervous already that you think this is going to end up where we're all holding hands in a field, passing flowers back and forth, and saying that we are one with the universe? Anybody worried about that so far? Here's the big question. What about God's holiness? Because doesn't it also say in the Bible, and isn't a song given about God that a prophet saw in a vision saying, God is holy, holy, holy? Yes. God is holy. That biblical word means separate, other, literally a cut above. God is 
not like us. He's the creator, we're the created. He's eternal and infinite. We're bound in time. We had a beginning on this earth. We're limited in every way. We feel our limitations every day. And the most characteristic thing about God as God is His holiness, His otherness, His separateness. And doesn't His holiness, someone will ask, doesn't the fact that God is above us, that His ways, as He told us, are not our ways, doesn't that mean He's angry all the time? Good question. And if you read much of the Old Testament and much of the Bible, it may think you, say, you may think so. Psalm 7, verse 11 says this. Read the Bible again with me if you have your bulletin. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who shows His wrath every day. You've heard me say that countless times in sermons. God is a righteous judge, a God who shows His wrath. There it is. God is love, but love is not all that God is. God can also be. God is wrathful. God is a righteous judge, a God who shows His wrath every day. But wait, here's my point. Here's my argument. God's justice means that He can be angry, but His anger and judgment are only provoked by sin. I'm going to say that again. Because this is a doctrinal sermon, and I'll have to repeat myself. This doesn't flow quite as well. It's one of my frustrations as a preacher. It doesn't flow the way working through a passage would. Because God is unswervingly just, because God Himself is holy, that means that He can be angry. But His anger and judgment are only provoked by sin. Imagine this. Would you vote for a judge who made you the promise a criminal judge who is elected by the people, here's his promise to you. Vote for me and they all go free. I don't care what they've done. I don't care if they confess. I don't care if they show me video. I am so loving that if they show up in my courtroom, I'll always and only give them the good news that they're walking right back out. Would you vote for that judge? No. You would hope and want that judge to be righteously angry against crime. Is that true? Judge, I killed six people last night. Eh, we all make mistakes. You're having a bad day. I've had bad days. It's okay. Promise not to do it again? I do, I do. Okay, there you go. Nobody would want that. People want justice for others. What do we want for ourselves? Mercy. Justice for you, mercy for me. What a great life this is going to be. So make no mistake, because of His holiness and because of His justice and because of His righteousness, and God is all of those things perfectly, for those of you who are inclined to theology, theologians speak of God's simplicity, meaning that God isn't like a pie that you put together with various slices. Everything that God is, He is perfectly and all the way through. He's not kind of loving and somewhat merciful, and He can be patient, and He can also be a little grumpy and angry sometimes. No, everything that God is, He is perfect perfectly all the way through. But His very nature is love, and it's His justice that means that He can be angry, but His anger and His judgment when His holiness is offended is only provoked by sin. Listen to God deal with Israel. 
And he's going to speak to them the way one human being speaks to another. In fact, sometimes he's going to speak to them as a father trying to bring a wayward son home. Sometimes he sounds like a jilted husband who's been cheated on, pleading with his wife to return. Isaiah 65 verse 2 and 3 says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And from there, he's going to go on and describe basically witchcraft. He's going to say, Israel is continually doing the most detestable, darkest, most witchcraft-oriented practices. But what is God doing? What does that first line say? I spread out my hands all the day. What does it mean that God spreads out His hands? Because God is a spirit after all. What does it mean here? What is this word picture trying to tell you? He's reaching out. He's pleading. He's saying it doesn't have to be this way. Why doesn't it have to be this way? Because He loves them. What are they doing in return to God's love? Will you look at the part I underlined? What is Israel continually doing to God? They're provoking Him, a people who provoke me to my face, continually. Read Psalm 7, verse 11, but look at the very next verse. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows His wrath every day if anyone does not repent. God will sharpen His sword. He has strung His bow and made it ready. Again, these are word pictures of the ancient world. God does not physically and literally need swords and bows and arrows, but those were weapons of war in the ancient world, and God is condescending. He is patiently speaking to His people in terms they can understand, saying, look, I'm a righteous judge. I'm not indulgent with criminality and sin. I'm righteous and unswervingly righteous. You will not get away with this, but the offer is in verse 12, if anyone does not, what? Repent. In other words, humanly speaking, if I may, because it's hard to know how to speak about God with biblical accuracy, this is something God would rather not do because God is love. What Israel and people do every day is provoke God to His face. But the great, beautiful, and biblical truth is this. God does not delight in judgment. God will judge. He is a righteous judge. He is willing at any moment to express his anger and his wrath against sin, but he does not delight in it. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says this, Say to them, again to his wayward people in the book, in the Old Testament, Israel, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Sit with that for a second. righteous judge who expresses his wrath every day. Why does he do that? Because he's provoked every day. He's sinned against every day. But listen to him speak of his heart. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear the pleading? If I can paraphrase, I'm about to judge you, but I'll find no pleasure in it. What would bring me pleasure instead is that you turn away from your wickedness, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Isaiah 28, 21 is the verse that made me sit up straight this week. It's a strange verse. It even has the word strange in it. Let me bring you the context. Israel has sinned so grievously in this point of the book of Isaiah that Isaiah, God is explaining to or rather, Isaiah is prophesying regarding God that as God once rose up to fight against their enemies, now He's going to fight against them. Because if you've read the Old Testament all the way through their journey to the promised land and their life in the promised land, Israel was continually attacked and continually under pressure by enemies that wanted to destroy them and bury them in a day if they could, and God continually defended them and rescued them. Isaiah 28, verse 21, one of the strangest but most comforting verses in the entire Bible. The Lord will rise up as He did at Mount Perizim. That's one occasion where God fought Israel's enemies. He will rise in wrath as at the Valley of Gibeon, another time God fought His enemies. But look, to do His work, His strange work, and to perform his task, his disturbing task. Some of your Bibles say this, his alien work. It's getting a little deep. Let me explain to you. What God is saying in Isaiah 28, verse 21 is, you have provoked me for so long that I will now rise and judge you as you know in the past I have risen to judge your enemies, but when I do it, it's alien to me. It is strange to me. It is a disturbing thing that I am going to do. Judgment is a strange work for God, but love is His very nature. Is any of this making sense? Let me help you with a word picture. The author, the theologian I read this week as I explored this after I'd gone through the Bible, I read Dane Ortland's reflections, he had this interesting little thought experiment. If somebody catches you off guard and kind of pokes at you, what most naturally comes out of you? Are you just naturally sweet and merciful? Somebody pokes at you and goodness just pours out? Discuss with the person sitting next to no, you. I'm just kidding. I don't... I don't want to load up my calendar with counseling on Sunday morning. If you poke at me, what might most naturally might come out is impatience, edginess, tiredness. Just a little put out that you've interrupted. God cannot be caught unawares. God cannot be surprised. But because God is love and because judgment is alien and strange to Him, it is what He would rather not do. It is what He pleads with sinners not to obligate Him to do because of His righteousness. If you poke God, what most naturally flows from Him, though God is perfect in every way, what most naturally comes out of Him is love. 
His inclination, his eternal existence is to love people. That's why he made us. And a mountaintop verse in a very strange place is the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 33. If this seems a little difficult, it's because we've spent so much time in the Old Testament. Let me explain to you what the book of Lamentations is. First of all, the name tells you you're in different territory, right? The book of Lamentations is a long, carefully structured, beautifully written lamentation over the destruction of Jerusalem. It was written by the prophet Jeremiah. You can think of it as a very long eulogy. Or if you're into classical music, you can think of it as a requiem where Jeremiah, using things that are hidden to us because he wrote in Hebrew, uses literary devices to put in perfect order a beautifully structured acrostic pouring out his heart and grief over what happened in Jerusalem. Because what happened in Jerusalem was war and starvation and cruelty on a, way, on, on a scale that we would now consider in the modern world genocide. And Lamentations is what the prophet said. That's why it has that name, because it is a long lament. And the chapters and the verses in our Bible came much later, but the way it's structured and spaced out in Hebrew, it lets you see that it's a perfectly ordered chapter with one long chapter in the middle, flanked by two shorter chapters on each side, and the center verse of the book In other words, he went to great pains to write this in a way to draw attention to the fact that he was pouring out his grief, but it wasn't chaotic. As a pastor sometimes and as a law enforcement chaplain, I've had to go to the scene of a disaster or to give someone terrible news, and in that moment, it's chaos in Bedlam. There's lamentation and crying and screaming and questioning and accusations, This is not that. Jeremiah has had a very long time to think about what he witnessed and how people brought this on themselves. And in the center, the very center of the book, I'm not guessing, the way he structured it, the center verse in the book which chronicles the worst of God's judgments is this, Lamentations 3, verse 33. Would you please read that with me from your bulletin? Lamentations 3, verse 33 says this, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Sit with that for just a second. In judgment that would make a rated R movie if it was accurately portrayed on a Hollywood screen, in the middle of pouring out his own grief where Jeremiah says things like, I'm worn out from crying. I've given up. I'm burned out. I feel like a piece of debris witnessing all this. In the middle of the book, he puts this. He does not afflict, what's it say? from his heart. And there we see just a pale reflection in our own experience of what the perfect heart of God is like. And to understand this, it helps to be a parent. 
because loving, faithful, good, merciful parents discipline their children because they love them, but they are not eager to act that way. Does that make sense? I'm far from a perfect father, but by God's grace, I think I've been a faithful father. And I have never gotten up one day in my life since I had children saying, I hope I can break my heart's kids today. I hope I can break my kids' hearts today. I'm really looking forward to carrying this emotional hammer in my hand all day, hoping that they step the slightest bit out of line because then, boy, then comes the hammer. I'm going to sit on the edge of my seat and hope they disappoint me. I'm going to sit on the edge of my seat and look for the slightest infraction, and boy, when it comes, are they going to hear it. Those of you who love your kids, have you ever acted or thought like that for a day in your life? No. You step in and correct them with a grieving heart, with tears in your eyes, with dread about that conversation. How much more does God feel that way if God actually is love? Let me tell you two reasons this matters and then I'm done because the best stuff, Lord willing, comes next week. The question is this, so what? And this is, hopefully, you've learned some things here, but maybe it felt a little bit like seminary. Did it feel like seminary at all? Don't let me know, I'll get discouraged. So what? There's a lot of so what's, and that's what I've been fascinated by all week, turning this over and over in my mind. Here's, here's three quickly before we're done. Number one, that God is love, and God is love in this way, and God does act in holy judgment, and God is a righteous judge who is angry with the wicked every day, but His anger can only and will only be provoked his judgment is actually an alien and strange work to him. It is something he would rather, humanly speaking, not do. Number one, this shows how different we are from God because he must be provoked to anger. I must be provoked to love. And that's a big difference between God and me. See, every human being I know, beginning with this one, needs a reason to love somebody else. And people justify their lack of love for others by saying things like this, never met the guy. Not my problem. He's not in our family. Or he was in our family, but look what he did. No, we need reasons to love, and given reasons, we withdraw love. Isn't that true? Again, don't answer. Don't raise your hands. I don't want to start anything. Anybody having trouble with a family member right now? Isn't it easy to diminish and damage the love that we have for people? Not in God's case. To use Dane Ortland's word picture, what God is sitting at the edge of His seat, willing, eager, and what comes most naturally to Him is to love people. We need reasons to love people. God loves simply because that's who God is. Number two, most importantly of all, don't miss this. If you have any doubt of your relationship with God, please don't miss this as I finish. Number two, this shows how much we need Jesus. This phrase that God is love in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, came out of this paragraph. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a giant biblical word that means that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice or the sacrifice that completely satisfies God's justice. When we are told that God is love, that does not mean a love that has no boundaries, and it does not mean that it is a love that is merely indulgent. It means that God manifested His love on earth by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that sinners and sufferers could live through Him. And we love God in return, not because we loved Him first, but because He looked across eternity. He loved us, and knowing that we had provoked Him through sin, knowing that we had offended Him, knowing that we would continue to do that every day of our lives, He sent His Son as the sacrifice to cover all of our sins. And the only reason I can tell you any of this, that God is love, is because God is love. And the only reason I've ever come to know Him is because He loved me. And what I've done through my own sinful nature is provoke God to His face. God told me not to lie, and I've lied. God told me not to lust, and I've lusted. God told me to love Him and to put Him at the center. I don't know about you. I continually struggle to put myself at the center, to lift my name, my reputation, my cause above yours or anybody else's, including the cause of God. And God, seeing all that in your heart and mind, sent His Son without us even knowing it was necessary or even asking. He sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for all of our sins so that God could love you from that moment forward all the way through the rest of eternity. No wonder the Bible says that no human eye has seen, no one has heard, and the human mind has not imagined what God has prepared for those that He loves. This is why we need Jesus. And finally, this shows how fully, utterly, and perfectly, we are loved. See, I know if you're anything like me and every other ordinary Christian that I've talked to, you've struggled all your life with the idea that God actually does love the likes of you at your worst moments. And you have feared that going back to God for forgiveness for the same old thing, you have finally tired him out. And this time, you haven't been counting, but what must be at least the 558th time, a holy, righteous God will look at you and your shame and your guilt, having done it again when you've promised 557 times never to do that again. You went right back into that ditch. You covered your hands with dirt again. You're coming to Him again for washing, cleansing, and forgiveness. And you can imagine God doing what you would do, sighing heavily and say, I can't believe we're back at this. You imagine God perhaps as the kind of parent you've been and I've been where He would say to you, really? Again? 
this again? And maybe you've had the kind of failure and the kind of unfaithfulness and the kind of ugliness in your life that you now fear that God may have loved you fully and strongly in the past, but with all that you've been through and all you've put Him through, He certainly cannot love you now as He once did. Does anybody else relate to any of that? What this means is that God in His very nature not who he grew into being, not who he learned to be because we grow into love and we learn to love. God, by his very eternal, uncreated nature, is love. And because the God who is love is also holy and therefore also righteous and just, he can be provoked to eventually act in judgment, but even then he is slow to anger. He is long in mercy. He is deep in compassion and only acts in judgment against what he would rather do because God himself is love. And if you're in Christ, this is how you're loved. If you're not, you can't be loved this way. If you're not in Christ, the love of God was given to you by sending Jesus to die for you. And if you provoke God for the rest of your life by turning your back on His Son and turning your back on that sacrifice, then and only then will you have to deal with His unswerving holiness, righteousness, and justice. But He would rather not treat you that way. He would rather welcome you as His child than deal with you as a judge. So if there's anybody watching at home or if there's anybody sitting in this parking lot in this first service who has the slightest inkling of fear or doubt that you have peace with God, please trust Jesus today. And if you already have, understand that He has loved you this much and this deeply and that His very nature, His very character, who God is in His essence is to love you and when you weren't even thinking about him before you knew he even existed, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice to cover your sins so that you would never again know of his righteousness and his judgment so that you would only know him as your father who loves you perfectly and eternally and who cannot possibly love you anymore and who has situated the world in such a way that nothing, believe it or not, nothing you can do can make the father and the God who is love love you any less. And if you love him like that and you're secure in that kind of love, you can love other people the same way he loved you and that will make a difference in your marriage, in your family, in your children, at your job, with your neighbors. That will make a difference in the world. And when your work here is done, God will call you home without the blinders of sin and weakness and frailty and forgetfulness that plague us here. You will love God and enjoy him forever and you will be happier then than you ever possibly imagine that any preacher could ever tell you you ever could be because God is love and that's how he loves you in Christ. Let's pray. Let me just ask. I'm asking screens and I'm asking people in a parking lot. Have you trusted Christ in this way? God is holy and righteous and just and he is willing to act in justice, but he would rather give you mercy. He does act justly, but he delights in mercy. 
Is there anyone here this morning in the parking lot who needs to trust Him and say, God, having heard of Your holiness and Your love, I need to ask Your forgiveness for my sins. I need to be saved this morning. Anyone like that? If that's your situation, could I just ask you to raise your hand? We seldom have a public invitation here, but I just, I believe I should this morning. Is there anyone here who has a doubt of your relationship with God, still has fear that you are not loved and you are not forgiven in this way, who this morning here in the parking lot says, I need this. This makes sense to me. Yes, I see two hands there in the back. Thank you. God bless you. Anybody else? Thank you. I just saw hands. I didn't see faces. But if you have a moment, I'd love to meet you right over there by those blue cones when we're done with the service. For those of you who are turning to God, let me just invite you to turn away from your sin at this moment and turn yourself over to God. Whether you're on your couch or you're sitting here listening to me. And just turn yourself in as the guilty person who's sinned against God, who's offended God. But you're asking His forgiveness. You're turning away from that and asking Him to give you love and mercy instead. He will. It's who He is. It's what He does. And the rest of you Christians, next week, God willing, I'll be even to unpack this even further, how fully you've, you are loved, how nothing that you've ever done or has ever been done to you or ever could be can change God's eternal, merciful love for you. Father, thank you. You're so good to us. You love us in a way that I struggle to explain, in a way that I myself, having studied this all week, will have doubts about when this is over. Because we don't love the way you do. We need reasons. We need, we need to be persuaded we need to be secured in our love for people. You don't. You love extravagantly. You love, Lord, with the single cause that you are love. You don't need to be persuaded. You can't love more. You can't grow into it or get used to it. You simply love because love is who you are. And we want to thank you at the end of this service, having worshiped, having given, having prayed, we want to thank you for loving us this way. And for these, Lord, who have raised their hand, saying that today is their day of salvation, thank you. May they sincerely, humbly turn in their hearts to you, and may they know before this day is over that they have the assurance of being loved the way your word says. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.